This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Obviously, there's an important place for projects which are led by SSH ideas, but obviously there's also a lot of technical energy projects that will want to integrate um, aspects of societal challenge thinking into their work programme. And we know there is appetite to do this, but there hasn't always been the guidance or the um, uh, information for projects to know how to do that. And this is something that we think there could be more information about and obviously something the platform's been working to develop. Thirdly, if we zoom in to that 4% that I talked about earlier, you will see that certain social science and humanities disciplines receive the lion's share of that money. So we're talking about the economics, the business, the political studies, and so forth. Whereas some disciplines, psychology, for example, or history, are receiving a tiny fraction, maybe 1% of 4%. And are really, this isn't to say that there isn't an awful lot of work going on in that area, but it's not translating somehow through to some of these uh, larger programs and therefore the policy impact. And finally, there are institutional issues in all of this in terms of how um, uh, review panels and funding panels and funding calls are worded. So there's so much that's structural, which sets the course, really, for where we're going. And we think, again, there's more that can be done to include SSH expertise in those panels. So in this context, obviously, Shape Energy has done an awful lot over the last couple of years. There's absolutely not time to tell you about even a fraction of it. So the main thing here is that it is all available on our website. Here is just a snapshot of six of the open access reports that have been produced. There are approaching 30 now around all of the different activities, our city workshops, our sand pits, and so forth. One resource to highlight is this edited collection. This was a very much a collective effort. Chris and I edited it, but it was over 50 European scholars came together to put together chapters around exactly these questions, integrating social science and humanities into energy policy. And it's received almost 20,000 downloads in the past five months since it was launched. So you can see there is interest in this area. It's not just about the written resources. We have videos, webinars explaining some of the activities as well. And our researcher database is also a way to find expertise on specific topics in specific countries. So that now brings us pretty much to a close, almost perfect timing. Um, we've got these, these principles, and, and Rosie's covered the first four, and there's three more that I would encourage you to read when you have a moment. But the core basis of it is really trying to embed SSH within the way that Horizon Europe is managed, operationalized, both, I suppose, on the side of the Commission and those in Brussels, but also those actually planning and doing the projects, trying to get the most out of them so that we can really drive our energy transition forward. So I'd certainly encourage you to look at it and maybe even sign up yourself. But um, hopefully this, this presentation has provided a bit of context for the day. Um, and hopefully stirred a few thoughts because we're certainly keen for lots of discussion and debate within these two sessions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you very much. It was very helpful. Um, and obviously you've set the pitch in that actually your target is to really uh, shape and influence um, the new future funding uh, of the, uh, and also the future research uh, agenda uh, across Europe and there'll be more of that in terms of uh, seeking your views and whether you 
um, I want to sign up to those seven principles. And what we want to do throughout the day uh, at the conclusion of most sessions is to, um, you know, suggest, ask you to uh, commit to signing up to those seven principles that have just been set out to you and whether you feel that that's an important thing for you to do, um, to be stand up and count, to stand up and be counted, if you like, in terms of why this matters. Um, the remainder of the day, we're going to, as I said, it's going to be hopefully a lot of interaction. I hope that we can uh, liven things up so that you know you don't feel as if you're just passive recipients of information. That we can actually engage in a conversation with you. We're going to kick off with a session on cities. Then we're going to talk about money and leadership, and then we're going to talk about learning from projects across the piece that have actually demonstrated uh, what, what the impact of combining um, SSH, as, as we call it as an acronym now, into energy policy and energy activity to re you know, reduce uh, the carbon footprint. So um, I'd like to invite our speakers for the first panel to join me on, on, on the panel, please. There you go. Um, Cities as a unit of human population is going to go through the roof, as you know. Um, when you think about what will happen in um, India and what is happening in India, what will happen in Africa, and it will be happening in Africa in the next 10, 15 years, and Latin America and elsewhere, urbanization is going to be one of those key determinants of so many things of a future uh, in the 21st century that we're going to be occupying. And actually how we make sense of that let's say, unit of human population, that structure, that system, is going to be key. And when we think about uh, polluters, the impact on climate change, cities are going to be the drivers um, of that in a number of ways. They can either be the point of solution and the touch point for a solution, or they can actually make the situation worse if we do not think about it in a way that actually helps us um, enable us to actually think about a more human, social uh, approach to actually making the transition and making a just transition, if you like. And cities are going to be at the core of it. So we have a range of speakers, uh, uh, again, multidisciplinary, um, and that's the kind of key to the rest of the day also. Um, I'm not going to give you, the, their, you know, their bios and backgrounds. You've got all the information about them in the conference pack. Um, but I'm going to kick off by asking each of them a question. And... In, this, in terms of cities, as I, as I said, we know that um, they are going to be a very central feature of our future, uh, not least in Europe. Uh, and when we think about uh, population drift and the kind of split between urban and rural. Um, I want to turn first to Simone. Simone, tell me, from your perspective, from your perspective, is it <coughs> when we think about um, research and evidence in the kind of social dimension, is it all simply an issue and a matter of behaviour? Um, Could you take the microphone? Thank you. Um, no. <laughs> <coughs> I don't believe it is a matter of behaviour. I think a lot of, um, a lot of research in energy has, um, has focused, when it's focused on social sciences, has been interested in consumers, mm -hmm. has been interested in choice and behaviours, but I think that early on, people forgot to ask whose behaviour should we be thinking about. Mm. Um, and I think it's really important that we look at the behaviour of uh, and the choices made by people who are managing energy industries, who are managing cities, because they, their choices and their actions and their, um, their decisions are affecting what's possible for other people to do. So 
what's really interesting for me now at the moment in social science research and humanities research is about uh, looking at the institutions, looking at the systems, looking at energy practices rather than behaviours, and thinking about the, the context in which we are producing and using and converting energy. Okay. Absolutely. From, your, from the work that you've done so far, um, what do you think are the key barriers that we should be thinking about in terms of cities and this agenda in terms of energy and the, you know, reducing the carbon footprint? I think in a way that um, what's clear to most of us now is that the barrier is not technology. The barrier is in how we use technologies and how we manage them and how we make them available. Um, in terms of what's happening now in, in cities, and my own interest is not really in megacities, which is another kind of bias in cities research. We tend to think of when we talk cities, we're talking about massive metropolises. Then very many of the cities that we know are small cities, most, most people or most cities are smaller uh, and at the moment one of the great issues that we have in Europe is austerity politics which is um, depriving many cities of both the funds and also the powers um, to do more interesting things and to, to, to be innovative around energy issues um, because I think it saps confidence I think what we really need to push now is political confidence confidence in city, citizens also with their, uh, to be able to use their skills and their knowledge and their networks to, to move the agenda on, to change the way that cities work. So I think we need to think differently about who's in charge, mm -hmm. who takes responsibility, and how we share that responsibility. And one of the key things, I think, is that um, you know, universities have an, a, huge, a hugely important role to play, and in many of the, especially smaller cities, the university, the local authority, and the hospital are the major employers in the cities. Right? It's not so true of megacities, but in smaller cities, they're the key players. And if they don't work together, we're never going to reach any solutions here. So a key issue here is how we work together, how we communicate, how we share responsibility, and how we um, develop collaborative projects amongst ourselves to, to think about a more kind of people-centered development, a people-centered approach to designing services and products that will help us uh, achieve the kind of outcomes that we're looking for. Mm. And I think, well, I suppose, many people talk about the fact that it's, it's, it's a people issue. Uh, as you say, it's a, it's a behaviour issue. And you quite rightly point out, it's whose behaviour. But there's something about the fact that um, a lot of the public dialogue, and I'm not sure, you know, does the research back this up, that um, whilst it, it relies on behaviour change across a spectrum, um, there's something about the fact that the choices available to people to change their behaviour are not are presented as being, you know, uh, guilt-ridden or problematic or actually not easy. And from your perspective, what needs to change in that regard? Mm, absolutely. So perhaps it's not surprising that in in Europe, <laughs> um, the approach we've taken is to um, is to focus on individual responsibilities and very much in a kind of moralised fashion. So somehow we've been led to believe that there are, there are two ways to be successful uh, in the world. One is to be extremely wealthy and enjoy luxury, uh, and another is to, um, to um, believe in piety and, uh, and self-denial. And this is the way that our energy choices are presented, that we, have to either, choose, we either choose to uh, you know, use uh, without thinking about the consequences, or we have to choose self-denial. And, and I think we need to change that approach. <coughs> uh, I think we need to stop moralising energy behaviour 
uh, as an issue and think about energy practices, thinking about the context in which people can make choices and recognise that more and more people now are, are realising that, you know, the meaning of life, happiness in life, well-being are not about uh, consuming as much as possible. They're about living well. Uh, and living well, I think, is an interesting approach to thinking about, OK, how do we use energy? You know, we're, we're, we're seeing now that people are actively choosing in Europe to leave the grid and to live as low energy as possible. And that's something that in other parts of the world is not a choice. So why are people choosing that now? And it's because, uh, they, you know, in order to do that, in, in order to lower your um, energy use but still live well, you have to go outside the system as it's currently offered. So we need to think of new ways of allowing people, enabling people to choose different um, energy practices, to choose different ways of life without them being a kind of denial, without them being a, a form of deprivation. I think we can live well on more efficient energy use. We can live well with less energy use. Um, but people have to have those choices available in order to be able to take them. Okay. Thank you very much. And I'll, I'll invite some comments in a moment or two, but I want to invite, firstly, Florent to come go next. I mean, if you could just take the mic, please. <clears throat> um, as a member of the European Parliament, you will see firsthand the dilemmas between um, policy-making legislation and the impact on cities and, and the, kind of, the kind of issues there are for people who are city managers or people who are involved in running a local system of sorts. From your perspective, what do you see as being some of the um, problems that you've encountered so far? Okay, so in terms of trying to make sure that what you're doing or what the Parliament's doing has a sufficient connection to a city, but using, let's say, science and humanities research, if that's ever come up. But then secondly, to think about looking ahead and thinking about what you think should change given we have elections this year and a, EU, in a new EU mandate emerging by the end of this year. So really big, chunky set of questions. But if you could start with the first one about experience to date and then look ahead in relation to, uh, to cities. Well, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know if, you, if we use uh, science, enough science in the European Parliament because if we would use science, really, I think that we will be more and more ambitious than what we are now. Okay. But politics and science are two different things sometimes, two times, we have to admit. But uh, let's focus on, uh, on what you said and how we can uh, just integrate the, the, the vision of the cities in the policies that we're doing and uh, the, the thing that we can imagine for the next, uh, next election. That's true, but we have elections in five months. And the, the most important thing is that the recent... Uh, clean energy package that we, we dealt uh, mm -hmm. here in Europe, European Parliament. I think you, you, you saw all of that, that in European Union we have a, a big reform of the energy policies. And uh, what we tried, most of all, for example, from the Greens, was to put the cities in the core of the uh, reform. Because we think that if we want to have a real decarbonisation of uh, the economy of the cities, of the territories of Europe, we need to have this work between Europe and the cities. So that's why, for example, in the governance directive, there is a lot of directives in the energy package, but for example, in the governance one, uh, we said that we need something very important. That's called participation. Participation of cities, participation of SMEs, 
participation of local authorities, participation of citizens, taking into account that the cities, the citizen will be the key driver, will be the people, will be the uh, real, uh, the key player changes that will do the change that we need. For example, just, a, just an example in order how that works. Uh, all the member states have to give this year to the European Union, to the European Commission, has to give a national long-term long strategy about their goal in 2050, about how to decarbonize their country. And they have to give an energy and climate action plan mm. for their goals in 2030. So what we, what we asked from the European Parliament, and we succeeded and we achieved to have with the European Council, is that all member states have to do a participatory uh, way to have these two plans. That's called a permanent multi-level stakeholders. And in these permanent multi-level stakeholders, you have the cities that have to play a concrete role. That's not just an administrative bureaucratic thing. No, the cities have to say what they want to do, what they want to achieve. Because we all know that the cities is the key player in all of that. 80% of GDP in the world comes from the cities. 7% of the climate, uh, of the uh, greenhouse gas, for example, come from the cities. 17% of the energy consum consumption come from the cities. So you need to have the cities in the core of that. And that's very important for the European elections because we know that we just not can just rely on member states to have the change. That's over. That's over. We have a lot of more people, a lot of more stakeholders that have to be part of the change. We saw that, for example, in all the climate uh, Change Summit, for example, in the last one, COP24, where the cities are just asking to have their part in the climate change transition. They want to have their part. So that's so important to make these elections and elections where we can talk at the same time of Europe and cities. Well, in my country, that would be easier, for example, because the same day we'll have elections, local elections and European elections. So we will have this opportunity to talk about these two things at the same time. My country is Spain, just in a to have it, because Belgium too, no? Belgium, we have, you have local elections and European elections, I think, the same day. So I think that's a real, real good time to, to say that cities in Europe, that's a mixed future and we have to think together. Okay. In terms of my question about the future, so you set out, you know, the, the, the package clearly sets that, you know, uh, the EU member states will have to have set out their stall for 2020, 2030, etc., etc. Actually, and making that, that important point about uh, participation being key to that. Uh, if you were thinking, if you were, had the opportunity to say to the new um, uh, president uh, of the Commission, and let's hope it's a woman and not a man this time. But um, let, what would you say to theoretically her about the priorities that she should set for the new mandate on this agenda, given what your experience has been around cities? What kind of different thing would you want, given your experience? Well, I hope she will be a woman, that's right. And that's why, as Greens, we have a woman as a candidate. So, yeah, no, no, no promotion at all. But the the things that I would say is that we need, for example, and that's a good point to, to begin, the gender issues. Gender issues is not just a social issue, that's an energy issue. We have to know that all energy issues, for example, should have a gender mainstreaming. If we look, for example, at the impacts of the heat waves in Europe, in the cities, in Paris, for example, in 2003, most of the people were impacted by the heat waves were older people and women. If we look at uh, energy poverty, for example, in Germany, we don't have to go to the south, we can just uh, look at Germany, most of the people impacted by energy poverty were women. 
Who takes the car to go to work? Most of all, men. Who takes the public transport? Most of all, women. Who does politics? Who does energy policies? Who decided in the Climate Change Summit, for example, who, uh, which photo would we have? Most of all, men. So that's why I think one of the, the priorities that I would like to see is the gender issues, gender mainstreaming in the energy policies, in the climate change uh, issues. I think that's a very important one to put because we need to have half of the population to decide about the future. Well done. Thank you very much for that response. And that wasn't planned, by the way. He came up with that just like that in response. There was no prior, prior briefing. Um, very interesting. And thank you for bringing that very important but very specific reference point into this discussion. Um, before I move on to other speakers, um, any responses? Or and I have got these this ghastly lights in my eyes, so I do apologise that I'm squinting. Um, any responses or reactions to what you've heard so far? Any questions that emerge in your mind or, you know... I think that's right, or, or I, there are another dimension. Gentlemen here, would you please say who you are? Yeah, my name is Uwe Wissenbach, and I work for the External Action Service. I just have a question on the evidence that you're, that you're um, for, for, for the argument that you're making that lots of people are changing their lifestyles and stuff like that away from consumption. My impression is that ostentatious consumption is running wild rather than the opposite. And that's not off, 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 offset by a few people in Europe that are creating uh, local shops and, you know, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and I don't have the impression that any of this shift away from consumption is encouraged, neither by national regulators, for instance, uh, luxury taxes, consumption taxes, hiking up, for instance, or cities that are basically there to give tax breaks uh, to shops, uh, uh, department stores, and all that sort of thing to encourage consumption. So I'd, I'd like just to have some more evidence of you for your claim there. Yeah, okay. I'm not sure I claim that lots of people are going off-grid, but I think what we're seeing is a kind of differentiation. So clearly consumption is, is still rife in some areas. But certainly for the part of the world that I'm living and working in at the moment, um, we're seeing some quite different approaches taken in various cities to thinking about how, uh, how people can uh, live on lower energy um, lower energy consumption and, and, and better use of energy services. So what I think is important is that there's a very differentiated picture around Europe. So um, on the one hand, I mean, if you do, as I did, uh, walk from Brussels Midi up to here, you'll see that on the, on the space of two streets. So you come out of the city, there's lots of um, very low-key shops doing small projects, and then you walk a little bit closer to here and you see all the kind of very high consumption, uh, extremely expensive shops that people, you know, that you pay way over the odds in order to be part of a kind of club of people who can afford expensive things. But we have, we, it's not one story. We have many stories to be told here. And I think that's the important message, that we need to tell all these different stories. And we are already seeing them through the kind of publications that we're seeing about very varied energy practices. So some regulatory systems are encouraging consumption, some are not. Uh, but the point is that they're not... They're, they're kind of conflicting at the moment. We're seeing a very complicated and, and confusing picture about where we are now and where we want to be. 
Thank you. I think you're, it's a good point you make because actually, and um, perhaps it will come through the conversations also, is that you'd be forgiven to, to assume that actually when you think about our public culture, it, is, it feels as if we're consuming ourselves to like, you know, the grave. It's like, uh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And um, where you see the kind of every opportunity to boost sales or boost opportunities for people to actually gain, go into a shop for, for, or, uh, or to eat or, or, or what, a whole range of things. Consumption seems to be, uh, and the projections globally, uh, as, I, as I understand it, the projections are that if we don't do something about it, our consumptive behaviour, our consumption behaviour will actually outstrip a lot of our, our planet um, if we don't actually change uh, lots of what, uh, what we're doing. Remember, but it's a good I point, May. Can Please. I just add a point there? Yeah. I was just going to say that nearly every major city in Britain now has a junk food cafe. I think that's a sign that people are willing to do things differently. Uh, and the thing that stops people opening junk food cafes is... You know, about regulatory barriers that need to be changed. So we're on, we're on a journey here. Great, okay. Any, anyone else? Gentleman here. Uh, and the lady there, so I will come to you. Ah, great. I've got three. But you have to be very brief, because I know that my, my, the people that kind of, uh, who are supporting me from the background will say to me, stop this, because we're running out of time. Thank you. Don't you think that one of the major problems here... Say who you are. Is, sorry? Please introduce yourself. Ah, yes, I'm Jacques Desjarlache. I'm an ecotoxicologist and in, in charge. I will publish a, a book next month on energy transition. In Good, you've got your plug. Excellent. Yeah. Wonderful. But the problem, don't you think that the major problem we are facing is that uh, uh, we are unable to manage complex problems? All our trainings throughout Europe and elsewhere is dissociative and reductive because from primary school to university is Cartesian, and we are not trained to systemic or holistic approach. When you t tell, tell, okay. tell this man to people, they say holistic, oh, new age, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that's a basic and major problem we're facing. As so long as we have not the methodology, as not, yeah. we have not the methodology to face and to manage complex problems, don't you think it will just be impossible? Because transition is okay. not a single problem. No, indeed it's not. But actually, if our pedagogy is wrong, um, that feels like you know, we're doomed. We have to be, find a way of being able to change, don't we? But I'll come back to some of the panel members. Let me just take a couple, and I will invite some of the others if you're itching to respond. Don't, don't hesitate. So there was a lady here. Yes, good morning. Uh, Laura Vanvier, I am uh, a researcher working on uh, energy transition problematic. And I have just a, a question uh, uh, on, uh, uh, about uh, the, the, the issue on the, at the panel. Uh, don't you think that the, one of the main issues for CHG is uh, actually the lack of uh, integration between uh, energy policy and uh, social policy, because if you, you, you have mentioned energy poverty, you have mentioned uh, the, the role of the cities, you have, you know, and okay. the contraction today, and we have it uh, uh, very clearly in, in France uh, at the moment, is uh, uh, the opposition and the resistance of, uh, of uh, a part of the population uh, 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 again, uh, the uh, energy uh, okay. uh, policy. All right, sure. That's, I'm interested. I'm, I'm, pl I'm pleased you brought yes, that yes. up. The whole Paris, the French affair, and kind of, I suppose, yeah. Is it a question of bad policy making, bad implementation, or just not understanding people? But let's come. I'm sure people will come back, come back to that. Um, there was a lady there. Thank you. 
Good morning. Ruth Maurik from DuneWorks, one of the Shape partners. Um, I was intrigued, Florent, by your comment uh, that if you would use science more, policy would be more ambitious. Um, so I'm wondering, why aren't you? <laughs> okay, let's start with that, Florent, then I'll come back to you, Simone. No, I would like to comment on the three, uh, three, three questions. First, on your questions, you're totally right. I think that complexity is very hard to, uh, to admit and, to, uh, and uh, to manage, and that's something that we see in politics, for example, in the European Parliament, in general, in life now. But something, for example, what we try uh, to, uh, to have and we achieve in, um, at a stage, that's to have, for example, just a, an example, we have on the Clean Energy Package one directive on the buildings, on energy efficiency in buildings. It's called EPPD for the people who are following that. And in that one, one of the proposals and the proposal of the European Commission is to have a near-zero energy building. That means that we have to have some buildings that are perfectly uh, neutral, carbon neutral. And what we said, for example, and I uh, achieved to have in the, in the final draft, is to have not to talk about the building, but to talk about the district, to, to talk about the complexity of the thing. Because we can have a very good building, very passive, very, of, of what we want, but at the same time, for example, if you have to go from the center to this building in car every day, well, I don't see any gain of reduction of green gas uh, emission, for example. So we need to think about complexity, about the district, about the city, about an ecosystem. That's the thing. And that's something that we achieved. So just to, you to see that we talk about that. Some people like me and other people, we want to put it inside because we think that complexity is the main issue of the uh, 2100th century. So that's for th this one. On your question, your question about so uh, social policies, energy policies, you're totally right. That's like, that means two worlds. That's two worlds. For example, energy poverty. We wanted to put it in a clean energy package. We succeeded at the end. But for example, what the, the, the members said, uh, stay, uh, said, they said, no, energy poverty, that's not about energy policies. That's about social policy. So we don't want to talk about social policies, energy policies. What? I don't know. That's the, the way that they see things. For example, the same thing for gender issues. Gender issues, I put a lot of amendments about gender issues in the energy package, and they all were refused, put it down. Why? Because people just don't understand the link between the social issues and energy issues. And I think that we have to know that there's no difference. That's the same thing. Energy, social, that's the same thing. That's the complexity that we have to, uh, to deal with. And for example, if we talk about ecological transition, that's about just transition, as we said at the beginning. That's the same thing. If we talk about the yellow in France, for example, that's about just transition. We have to link both things. There won't be ecological transition without just transition. That's the same thing. And uh, about science, whoa, about science. Yeah, I would like to, to talk about science because, for example, we clearly see, for example, what we're going right down to the suicide. A global level, we know that. For example, if you go, if you look at the, the numbers, what we say and what we see, for example, is that we're going to raise the temperature at the end of the century at more than three degrees. If we, if we just saw the compromise that we have, for example, on the table by the member states here in the European Union in the old world. We're going very bad. We don't have a weekend just uh, go further than 1.5 degrees, but we're going on the road of three degrees. Science and politics. And if you go, for example, to COP24 and the last one that we had in Katowice in Poland, well, 
no way to have a better uh, agreement on the Paris Agreement, no way to have a better agreement on the reduction of uh, green gas uh, emission, because, because that's about politics, that's about people don't want to uh, change their life. For example, Trump don't want, doesn't want to hear anything. Bolsonaro wants to have and to withdraw for, from the Paris Agreement. That's about politics. That's the big problem that we have. We don't listen to science, because science is very clear. We're going here, we have to go in that way. And that's the same thing that I had during all the debates and all the negotiation in the clean energy package, because the other one, they told me, yeah, maybe you're right, science say that, but my voters don't say that. That was the thing. So, you, you, know, you already know, if you want to have some changes in politics, that's not about science. That's about faith, and that's about politics. That's something else, and that's why we talk, I think, about social, science, social sciences, because politics is about human beings. That's not about science and concrete things, not only. Well, thank you. Okay, I'll try to be brief. Um, Okay, so the first question was about um, holistic pedagogy, and I, I disagree. I don't think it's difficult to uh, have a holistic pedagogy, and that's exactly what we're doing in, uh, in Durham, where I um, direct a master's in energy society. Uh, and the students come from completely different backgrounds, from different countries, from different disciplines, history, anthropology, geography, chemistry, biology, engineering... And they learn to talk to each other and understand each other's perspectives and look at the literature that's coming out of different disciplines. We can do it. We just have to get on with it, really. Um, and I have people come for the intensive teaching weeks, for short courses. It's not difficult. It's just something we have to do. So I would encourage you to, to take heart and say, we, we can actually teach holistically. We can bring people together from different disciplines. Uh, and we can use what we know about pedagogy to, to, to make a real change. And I think that is something that's changing. Uh, and my uh, students tell me how much it's changing, more than my expectations, I think. So they come to me because they say, well, we've already realised that we can't resolve um, our energy problems by technology, so we want to learn how to, how to work together and how to, how to hear each other. Um, I've just got a short comment about this question about integration, integrating energy and social policy. Um, clearly... What's happening in France at the moment is, is not really about energy, it's about democracy, and I think that's really important. And I think that the, the fuel tax protests in Britain were also not really about fuel, they were about something else. Um, but I would say that um, I, um, I was at a meeting of the all-parliamentary group on energy studies uh, a year or so ago, and I uh, ventured to say that I thought that, um, you know, and that poverty was a broader issue and, and really there were other departments that should be thinking about poverty so that it wasn't a problem for energy. And I was more or less lynched by people saying that poverty is an energy problem as well and energy is a poverty problem. So I think in that context, we're already convinced that these things need to be linked together. Uh, and we're, you know, thanks to organisations like National Energy Action, it's very clear that energy vulnerability has to be taken seriously uh, in, in, across energy and social policy. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Thank you for engaging in the conversation. I'm going to go back to the panel and I'm going to move to Stephen um, from Arup. Now, Stephen, you've, you, know, you're, you're, you have a lot of experience in terms of city planning, city management, etc. And given the conversation we're having, I suppose the one question that occurs to me is that when we think about what we, what we refer to as you know, these citizens' units uh, of population and a system and an ecology uh, that can be quite complex and very difficult to manage, especially in the context of energy transition. From your perspective, from your perspective, is it a case of having a more of a managed market approach to cities 
in this context, or do we just let a thousand flowers bloom? Fifty. Uh, thank you. So I, I, I think it's um, thinking that sort of uh, hearing the discussion already uh, this morning, we see cities all over the place taking uh, taking sort of great ambitious uh, commitments, making their zero carbon uh, policies, making these commitments, um, uh, and and yet. Uh, I think the reality is is the cities are, are are highly constrained in 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 actually what they can achieve, particularly within the energy system. Um, you can see lots of movement happening on on uh, on transport, no pun intended, where 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 cities have uh, fairly extensive powers, um, and housing might be another area where where, mm. where you see direct investment uh, by cities or um, planning uh, and urban development policies where they can implement that. But within the energy system. Uh, there's quite a lot more constraint on, on, on what, city, what cities can do. So uh, I, I think for me, one of the things that I think needs to be, uh, needs to be taken forward to really deliver, to deliver the transition is, is, is creating space at the city level where kind of meaningful, um, uh, a meaningful discourse can, can happen around, uh, around energy systems and energy policy. And that is, of course, partly technological and partly about... Um, the different uh, energy vectors uh, and, and how they need to change, how some need to be withdrawn, some need to be brought in, but also around around some of these other policy uh, and, and engagement elements. So, so, so I think, I mean, in, in coming back to your question, in, in some way, every city will have a slightly different uh, mix of solutions. Uh, I think it's already been said that that you know the technologies that that we need are largely available. They're largely Effective, um, whether they're affordable, whether they can be brought in at scale, is still a question to be uh, that's being tested. But 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 certainly every city will have its own solution. But we don't necessarily have the structures, uh, the institutional capability, the kind of place for that for that debate and decision making process to happen about what is what is the solution for each city, and and how do we get all of the different parts of the system uh, to be moving in 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 line with with that with that should we say optimal. Uh, solution for for each each place mm -hmm. and that's great absolutely should happen but from your experience what do you think are either the accelerators that we could look at or the barriers that we need to confront um <laughs> talk about the barriers first it's mm. uh, easier i mean i i i think there is um for each part of the system for you know the boiler in somebody's house for the the um, electricity network in, in the streets for the large generation facilities, that there is a kind of, you know, there's a life cycle for each of these, each of these assets. And, and, and the reality is that um, those things will be renewed and changed. In some way, they're constrained by, by that life cycle. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to uh, go out and buy a heat pump tomorrow because my boiler's in great shape and, and, and you know, it's relatively new. And, and I'm, you know fairly uh, sensitized uh, to these things. And certainly anybody who, who couldn't care less about the energy system, you know, the, the point when, when they might make a change is, 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 is when those assets need replacing. And so, so that kind of imposes a pace on, on this system and a, and a rate of change that, that, that I think will constrain, um, the, constrain the reality of, of, of how fast change happens. But it also means an awful lot of thinking needs to be done, an awful lot of 
preparation needs to happen for those transaction moments. Um, and and I, don't, I don't see that really happening with um, supply chains, with the sort of people who are uh, informants about, about choices, but for the builder community who are, who are going into properties and doing renovations, for all, all these sort of parts of the system is, is, is how, how, does, how does that transaction moment result in a different decision than the one they made last time? So I think that's, that, to me, is a, a key issue, a key challenge about, about how, we, how we accelerate the, the, uh, the transition. And then I, I, I think um, in, in terms of what role city can play in terms of accelerating that, hmm. certainly a, a lot more engagement. We were talking la- last night about the, um, in a sense, the, the, okay, cities don't have that, that much power around, around uh, energy, but they certainly do have an awful lot of, um, should we say political or soft political power to engage, and, and there's certainly lots more space for cities to be um, engaging with all of these different uh, these different communities to, to facilitate, to raise awareness, um, uh, and and to kind of be the enablers of 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 of, of those of the transition. So I think there's a lot more to be done in that space as well. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I want to turn to you, Aziza, if I may. Um, if I could have the mic being passed along. <clears throat> OECD is a is a is a club of you know economies um, that is, that is important, and you're you're obviously achieve, you know gaining a lot of um, intelligence and analysis about what the issues are and how we might move forward. And since it's central to your role at OECD is to be able to kind of provide that evidence base or policy thinking. And I suppose my question to you is, given what we've been hearing so far and when we think of the world at large, is a just transition only about money? Is money going to be the driver for a just transition? Of course, money is part of the solution and uh, cities and regions have a very important role in in contributing to the financing um, of the transition to low carbon economy. But it's not only about money and actually two of the points I wanted to make there uh, relate to questions that were raised about the social cost of that transition and the policy trade-offs that the complexity actually requires uh, across levels of government and, and ministries. But it is also about money. Let's start with that. Uh, Regions and cities are responsible in OECD economies, and two-thirds of OECD countries are actually EU uh, countries for 64% of the investment that goes into sectors that have a direct implication for climate change. They're responsible for over 50% of the spending in sectors that have a direct implication for climate change. So we've heard a lot about cities that are uh, part of the problem because indeed they do concentrate the largest share of energy consumption globally and they are emitting most of the greenhouse gas emissions because they're where most people live and work. But they're also concentrating the largest share of GDP and they're concentrating the largest share of jobs, 60% uh, for each of these. So they are critical players in financing the transition uh, to low carbon economy in that shared responsibility across levels of government and um, with a good mix of taxes, tariffs and transfers. Now, it's not only about that, of course, for two reasons, as I said. And the first one is the fight against inequalities and the social cost. We know that 
many of the decisions that are taken in energy and, and other areas, infrastructure investment and adaptation to climate change or mitigation of climate change at large, have distributional effects, regressive effects on vulnerable groups. And I agree that what is happening in France now is uh, a symptom of a syndrome. It's, it's broader than energy, and it's actually become something that is a mix of different complaints. Um, but it started, I would say, it was sparked with carbon pricing and the distributional effect on vulnerable groups. And we see many cities that are trying to mitigate those risks while having measures, incentives that make sure that the proceeds that come from carbon pricing, that come from congestion charges, are reinvested in areas that uh, help fight inequalities and mitigate the impacts on the poorest. Public transportation system, for example, as we see it in uh, London and many other cities, energy affordability or retrofits for poor vulnerable groups. So it's, it's very important to keep that mm. inclusive growth slash energy nexus in mind because even if inequalities have fallen globally over the past decades, we know that inequalities have uh, grown tremendously within countries and the larger, the bigger the city, the larger the inequality. So that's, that's the first point. They come at a social cost and we need to assess and address ex ante the social costs of uh, that transition. The second point very briefly is about policy trade-offs and governance. Cities, it was said, and we've seen many mayors and governors stepping in where uh, central governments mm. are stepping back. Mm. Uh, and we've seen a, a strong advocacy uh, and lobbying for the role of cities, which sometimes uh, didn't do justice to what was said earlier, which is that a lot of the decisions related to the energy transition are carried out at national level. They have to do with removing fossil fuel subsidies. They have to do with national grid and, and so on. So you need that shared responsibility. And there I'll say two things. We have reviewed 150 countries and what their national urban policy is saying about the environment mm -hmm. and energy transition. Mm -hmm. We see that only 11% of those countries have mainstreamed energy transition and climate change in their national urban policy. 11%. 11%. That means in most cases, we continue to have an aggregation of sectoral policies that we know work against each other. We know that you can take measures for energy affordability, for example, to farmers with subsidies that will incentivize over-abstraction of Indeed. water resources and work against uh, uh, other policy goals. So those trade-offs, that governance is really essential. Mm. Uh, you can have a lot of money, but if you continue to take siloed policies that work against each other, we're not hitting the mark. Yes, thank you very much. Um, and... You've raised lots of issues, lots of questions, which I want to get, invite the audience to react to. But I want to move, move swiftly on to Renata. Um, last but not least, uh, it's interesting to bring your perspective. You're a, private, you're, you're a company, you're a private sector company. You have, um, as a company, led, I think, uh, others, in, in, especially in the areas of renewables in particular, and, and a whole range of others. But from your perspective... How are, you know, how are you as a company, as a business, thinking about cities shaping your future in terms of your business model and how you do, and how you do business, basically? Thank you. Cities are at the center of our agenda. We are, a, a, as you probably know, we are an energy company, and Ali is an energy company acting in more than 30 countries. 
and our main aim is to produce, distribute, and sell energy, uh, electricity, and to provide energy services. It means that uh, the road ahead that we, we see is uh, uh, strongly informed by the evolution of city. We act in many countries, in uh, Italy and Spain, and in many countries in Latin America, where the urbanization is one, and the worldwide urbanization is one of the major trends, and particularly in our markets. So we believe that uh, urbanization is one of the major trends of our, affecting our contemporary society. And it means that uh, uh, the perspective, but we know the projection, we know that uh, currently more than half of the world population is urban, and the projection we have, uh, in we are, we have to face is that in 2050, about two-thirds two of the world population will be urban. It means uh, uh, around two and a half billions of new citizens. So it means that a lot of pressure will be on our urban areas, on our infrastructure in the next future. So the energy transition, the sustainable energy transition in city is uh, uh, at the core of the sustainability of our business. And I believe that it is at the core of the sustainability of our society. Uh, so we have to change the energy sector in city. And that's why we, as an L, we have... Uh, a strong focus on this point, but what does it mean in concrete? It means that we are rethinking about what are the pillars of our strategy in city, and we focus on, basically, in our long-term strategy, we focus on decarbonization, electrification, and energy efficiency. Decarbonization means to promote the use of renewables. Uh, we all know that renewables uh, is the way. Uh, at NL, we are the, um, the leader in the uh, renewables uh, worldwide. So we believe, strongly believe in the uh, pushing and fostering the development of renewables in all the areas in the world and in all the countries where we operate. But what is most important here is to push uh, to foster the electrification of the end use because this is uh, strictly related to the, um, I mean, the decarbonization of, of the use of all the sectors, not only electricity, not only uh, energy, but also transportation, for instance. And uh, uh, it means that uh, we have to, to better understand how transportation sector can be affected by this. We know that the electricity revolution of mobility is now starting in some country, and we are pushing forward in all the area where we operate. Electric public transportation, for instance, this is one of the key points. We believe that this can be a leverage, an important leverage, to manage one of the most important problems of the urban areas, that is pollution. Pollution is becoming more and more important as a challenge in the urban areas. We, saw, we think about pollution as a problem in Europe, but uh, we know that in megacity, pollution is a, a, a really a challenge. And so pushing electric transportation in city means to um, clean air, to have cleaner air, and to promote a better living in city. Uh, so policy pushing forward the electric transportation are important. And that's why we as a company are considering energy services related to electric mobility as one of the pillars of our new business model. 
At NL recently was established um, um, a division named NLX, I, I worked there, that has uh, a focus, a specific focus on city, on uh, energy services for city, and in electric mobility, exactly because we believe that this is at the core of the energy transition, and this is at the core of the sustainability of our business. How much of a problem or an opportunity is local government for you? Well, we have a... If you can be honest within this framework, okay. don't worry, we won't say anything to anybody else outside. Okay, it's clear that uh, uh, this transition cannot uh, uh, happen without a, a strong cooperation among the different urban stakeholders. And uh, we partner with stakeholders with, in different uh, areas and in different geography. And I want just to quote an example concerning mobility, electric mobility and electric transportation. We operate a lot in Chile. This is one of the most important markets for us. And uh, Santiago is a, a city with uh, about 7 million people living in the area with a very uh, peculiar orographic configuration that doesn't allow a, a good uh, air change during the winter period. And it means that the quality, the air quality in Santiago for seven months a year is really poor and is affected by traffic and uh, uh, heating of the houses in all the winter. So it's a real problem. And the uh, um, municipality of Santiago and uh, uh, the organized Intendencia Metropolitana de la Ciudad de Santiago issue a policy that is named Santiago Respira, is a very challenging plan exactly to promote this and to foster the investment of company in the area promoting electric transportation. Mm -hmm. It's not an isolated case. We know that some mega cities are going in this direction. So I believe that uh, there are some good examples of policies fostering this energy transition, leveraging on private investment, leveraging on the involvement of, of, of all the sectors. So sure. the cooperation among the stakeholders in this case is important. But we see that some policies are already happening and arising in very different areas, specifically megacity. Mm. Can I bounce back to what Aziza said about the kind of OECD view in terms of the canvassing of countries' approaches um, to this agenda? And when you quoted the 11% figure, you, 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 you're, you're working in 30 countries uh, across the globe, as you said. And I just, um, I just want to press upon you a little bit more about the municipality issue. I mean, you, you obviously, a good example of the Chile, etc. But from a European context, how much of a, as I said, how much of a driver or a support mechanism is the municipality in terms of what you're trying to do? And if you can say that without, you know, thinking about the politics of it. Yeah, it's important at this point because, you know, we see that uh, acting in, in more than 3,000 uh, small and medium municipalities in Italy, we see that uh, in this case uh, uh, it's very important to leverage upon policy at uh, um, national level. Mm -hmm. So in the case of Europe, uh, European market, we see that uh, the uh, national policy are really important to foster and to push towards energy efficiency and towards renewables. We have seen happening different uh, uh, 
I mean, the, the application of different policies fostering, for instance, renewables, decarbonization, energy efficiency. So uh, we believe that we are in the right track. Uh, my personal suggestion would be to, to push and to foster the, the use of the sharing economy. Because we see that in city, one of the most important things that we have to consider is that we have to share, to share space, uh, infrastructures, uh, and uh, uh, fostering sharing economy is really an important driver for the use, for instance, for a better use of infrastructure. And for, uh, uh, I mean, leveraging upon synergy among different infrastructure and among different ideas mm -hmm. and sharing for instance sharing mobility in our city uh, is becoming one of the most important transformation for mobility in city so i think that uh, policy should better foster this uh, um, sharing economy and uh, energy efficiency policy Excellent, thank you. I thought you were going to talk about the need for, and I think it's interesting where you flipped, I thought you were going to talk about the need for leadership amongst municipalities, but actually it's great that you're thinking about the leadership comes from community, and actually actually, community can lead by uh, uh, really living the values of what we want into much more of a sharing economy. Thank you very much for that. Now, I'm going to open it up. We are, we look, we have an eager beaver over there, sorry. And you're right underneath the light, so I can barely see you, I do apologise. Uh, can you just say who you are? No, I think you need the mic, even though you've got a you know, booming voice. Okay, I'll be quiet then. Good morning, uh, Garrett Kelly. Uh, I live in Sarajevo, but I'm Irish. So I'm going to go back through the entire line of them. And my question is, what do you think is the mechanism that can be used to have these changes? Okay, I'm going to start with Santiago. I live in Sarajevo. It's extremely polluted. I mean, it has ranked the dirtiest city in the world four or five times this winter. And it's exactly the same. Temperature inversion, 150,000 cars, which is not a lot, but it's in a valley, mm. and people burning all kinds of crap. So, you know, real men, in, not just in Bosnia, but in the Balkans, they drive diesel cars, let me tell you. And they drive German cars, because you're not real men until you do that. And this is a cultural problem as well, because... A very good friend of mine, a gentleman here on the left, is still living in the past. <laughs> a very good friend of mine moved from Bosnia to London maybe 12 years ago, and he's a filmmaker. And he's always watching my Facebook page, and we're always talking about electrification and hybrid cars. And he told me that as a New Year resolution, he's buying himself a two-liter diesel BMW. And I said, Oggy, oh, I said his name. Okay, you don't know his family name. I said, Oggy, come on, man. I said, and I sent him a whole load of reviews of hybrid cars. And I said, if you're going to spend that amount of money, why don't you, you know, think about your kids and think about the future. And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, the tax on diesel is more expensive. It is 450 and it would be free on an electric car. And then you come to these price point decisions and you realize that no, he would respond to a really strong price point because he knows that he knows what he should do, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a cultural thing where obviously the price point is not enough compared to his value that he attaches to a, a diesel car and a Jeep. So I'm going back to the when do you change your heat pump or when do you buy a new car? Mm -hmm. And I'm asking, there's a cultural 
issue going on there because the science is clear. The science argument has been won, as my green colleague has said, mm -hmm. but the argument has not turned into action with many individuals and leaders. And what do we need to do in order to push these decision points? Yeah. So what, you, what, what more you're referring to, if I, if I may, is that how do we in, engage or how do we create a cultural tipping point so that the, the kind of peer, the, the peer pressure element perhaps tips people's behaviour into the positive of not buying your two litre yeah, diesel Yeah, I don't plant. like to just focus, it's not always a citizen's responsibility no, to save the world. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. you know, big energy companies have to do things too, but... I, talk, I was talking about people across yeah. the spectrum, meaning political leaders who but I want them are to, key. I want, okay. the, I want their suggestion about what we need to do extra to okay. make those tipping points happen. Okay, all right, we'll come back to you. Lady here. Uh, Elena Scaroni. I work for Lighting Europe. It's the European Federation representing the lighting manufacturing industry. And my question, of course, is about lighting, uh, because I think that the uh, carbonization of the cities also is passing by lighting, of course, indoor lighting, public lighting. How can we accelerate um, the transition to LEDs uh, taking into consideration also well-being uh, of the citizens and good quality of light. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that question. And I think that's something that we will take into the next panel as well. Um, you've already, um, if I want to take somebody else, if, I, if you don't mind. Anybody, I saw another hand up over here. Ah, gentleman here. And the gentleman there, okay. Okay, thank you. I'm Jacques de Jong from Klingendal Energy in the Netherlands. Uh, I was driven by the issue of the debate on poverty, poverty, poverty. But a word of warning. Mm -hmm. It is okay, let's say, to share information and to share research at EU level. That's great. But be careful, let's say, about concluding for policy implementation and policy making. Because, you know, in the socio-cultural environment that we are living in, not Brussels is the answer for everything. So also the national level is very important for a lot of things. And also the city level is very important for a couple of things. Let's say, but on the poverty issue, this is basically a social policy issue and has nothing to do, I would say, with energy policy making. What really is important in the transition is, to, to, is the fairness debate is the equitability debate. It is the allocation of cost and benefits throughout society. You know, and in my country, okay. in the Netherlands, let's say, gas country, and our government is saying that within 10 years, all our 7 million houses have to be disconnected for gas. Crazy, crazy. Because a lot of people are, are, are getting angry and, 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 and become anxious on these kinds of things. Yeah, so how to translate these, 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 these broad debates into, into, into the fairness and equitability issue in, in, uh, in, in the energy transition that, that is necessary? And maybe a final point okay. is a question, okay. I guess, for the lady from the OECD and from uh, 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 the, the lady from, from Enel. Does it make a difference when cities are owning grids or not? In, or, or, or is it a burden? Is it a barrier or okay. is it a 
positive uh, dimension. Okay, thank you. That's, uh, there's a lot in there, and you've put a bit of a cat amongst the pigeons about your point about you know energy policy not being social policy. However, and given your conclusion that you want to deal with the fairness and equality as, a, as an issue, um, I'm going to. Uh, those of you who have questions, I will come back to you. But can I, uh, Simone? Could you want to start with the cultural tipping points um, question? Just want to just share. Yes, thank you. There's no doubt that there's a, there are cultural issues going on here. Uh, my good colleague Janet Stewart at Durham has uh, um, written extensively about the way in which our, um, our world is saturated by uh, oil imagery, by petrochemical language and so forth, and we're bombarded all the time with um, imagery and um, metaphors that kind of embed petrochemical ideas in our, in our consciousness the whole time. So there's no, there's no doubt that, uh, that at, at the very least, we have to first recognise that that is around us and then uh, um, develop new metaphors, if you like, and, and new ways of um, being a real man, for example. Um, but I wanted to just um, highlight the fact that, um, you know, one of the big debates in... Uh, in sorry? Sorry. <laughs> Watch the Gillette advert. Is that going to be a push? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the um, sort of major talking points in social science um, energy research over the past, say, 20 years has been about the way that energy also um, forms, forms the shape of democracy that we live in. So, inspired by people like Tim Mitchell's work about you know, showing how the move from coal to gas shifted the balance of powers in, dem in, in democracies across the world, not just in Europe. Um, and that clearly is a, a major issue when we're moving from um, uh, centralised energy systems to um, commercialised, uh, sort of um, um, diversified markets. But also now, um, one of the really interesting things that I think is happening now is that although all the time we've been talking about encouraging people to change their uh, supplies and their suppliers, I think the next really big breakthrough, breakthrough is the decarbonation of the gas supply. There's a huge amount of work going on, in, in certainly in the UK, uh, about using what is currently curtailed renewable energy to drive hydrolyzers to bring hydrogen into the gas system. So when, uh, when you're thinking about replacing your gas boiler, we're in a moment of uncertainty. We don't know exactly how long it's going to take or how it's going to happen, but it's pretty clear now that you don't necessarily have to, as an individual household, change your gas boiler. It may be that the gas system is decarbonized for you, just as the electricity system has been so radically decarbonized. It changes the name of the game. It changes the question of who's responsible. It changes the kind of, like, we opened mm. with the questions about guilt and self-denial. Mm. Uh, and those are the things I think we have to take account of. And that's where social science can really play an important role in highlighting the other effects, the other ways of thinking about energy use that mm. we can be using to answer these kind of questions. Indeed, but also using innovation research, let's say R&D, so that you can make it simpler, faster and better, actually, and can lead to some of the cultural tipping points, because actually it doesn't have to be about whether you go for a BMW or whatever, which is about, you know, behaviour, about sort of group behaviour to a certain extent, but actually systemically, you could, your example's a great one, actually don't change a boiler, but just put hydrogen through the system, is, there, is a neat way of thinking that you can actually change things by taking a much more systemic approach to some of these, some of these, these issues. Um, 
Go on, you want but to come? Also, at a kind of a level before that, I mean, we're talking very much today about policy, but I do want to highlight the role uh, in science research as well. Uh, one of the projects that I'm working on at the moment is the UK National Centre for Energy Systems Integration. And part of my role is to work with the engineers and the, and the mathematicians and the other scientists to get them to reflect on the way that the, the, the kind of expectations they have, their experience and their judgments are being embedded into the kind of models of the energy systems that they're designing, which will in the future define what's considered a, a, a realistic alternative to changing the energy system. So, you know, right in at that early stage, we have to think about the way okay. that um, energy is being imagined. Sure, sure. Um, and I do want to, you know, um, time's running out, but um, Renata, can you kind of respond to the question about, and I want to come back to you as well, as these are about the whole street lighting issue and LEDs. Because, I mean, one of the things that I'm aware of, one of the big um, Horizon 2020 projects, if I'm not wrong, has been to look at intelligent street lighting uh, across European cities. I'm not sure, you know, uh, where it is at this stage, but there is an there's a kind of sense that there is an opportunity to think very differently about street lighting, culture, uh, and community uh, in a different way. How are you responding to that? Yeah, absolutely. Street lighting and public lighting is one of the main, most important business for us at NLX. And uh, we believe that uh, the energy efficiency in street lighting, in public lighting, is a tra an important transition. So we are trying to accelerate the transition to LED in all the country, in all the city where we are. Uh, it means in more than 3,000 municipalities in Italy, in Spain, and uh, around uh, Latin America. But uh, it's really important because, you know, the technology is already available. There is a, a, an evident uh, convenience in uh, switching to uh, public lighting based on LED. So uh, this is a no-brainer. But uh, what we believe is that... Uh, the public lighting uh, infrastructure is a kind of urban hub that can be the center for new and different technology that can, um, mm. that can be the entry point for providing new and uh, new services to city and to citizens. The so-called smart city services can be already deployed in many cities, and we have some projects uh, around Italy and Spain and also Latin America, where we leverage on the public lighting infrastructure to provide new services, for instance, based on uh, analysis of flows of, um, of cars, to provide more efficient services for planning traffic and for planning traffic lighting services and to, to speed up mobility in city. So there is a lot of change and improvement in uh, city services and in urban services. And we believe that public lighting is one of the leverage that we can have, not only to introduce a more efficient light in our city, but also to provide different services to, to enhance efficiency. But the, the, I think the question from you was it's not happening fast enough. Is that right? Well, people haven't... Can, you, can we just take the mic back to you to just get a bit of a... Yeah, I'll, I'll bring you in, uh, sir, just, but it has to be very brief, I'm afraid. Thank you. So the, the focus is especially on the citizens. So mm. how can we assure, as Mr. Masalesi said before, the human-centric approach, how can we assure the well-being of citizens having a good quality of light? Yeah. So not only efficient lighting, but good quality of light. That's, I think, very, very important. That's... 
Okay. Question about. Yes, I fully agree on this point, um, not only in outdoor, but also indoor. And uh, this is one of the okay. uh, important mm. uh, aspects that we are taking care of and we are trying to promote. So, and for me, I, I suppose the connection that we're not making is that, is what I was trying to press upon, is the role of municipality, the role of political leaders and political governance that helps try and escalate the point that you're trying to make. Because actually the private sector in this case can't go it alone, in effect, because those are yeah. you know, public spaces. Anyway, I, I would add maybe to that dimension that in uh, the regional well-being framework that the OECD has uh, developed, which is looking at people-centered outcomes, uh, 11 material and mm. non-material conditions, mm. uh, lighting is often used and, and public equipment as a proxy to understand safety. Um, also at the, at the yes. city level. So mm. that's, that's a very important point. I'd like to respond, if you allow me, to the car uh, sure. discussion, which sure, I found fascinating, and maybe a word on social policy. Um, we, we've done some work recently where we see that 90%, uh, and based on OECD countries, 90% of the time uh, a car is being used, it's parked, it's stopped. 50% of the uh, urban planning and landscape, on average, is related to cars. It has to do with roads, street signing, sidewalks, and, and so on. Um, therefore, there's a bit of disconnect there, uh, and, and there's a bit of a rationale to, to make some transition there. I agree that the behaviors cannot be changed only with uh, what we saw earlier as economic instruments and taxing. And even if we have strong evidence that cities that have put in place urban tolls, mm. uh, uh, congestion charges have reduced significantly air quality. We see it in mm. Stockholm, we see yes, it in exactly. Milan, yeah, we yeah, see yeah. it in Singapore, many, many other OECD countries and cities. It's true that economic instruments are not enough, but they are part of the solution. You need to add to that a number of regulatory instruments and a political commitment that comes at a political cost. Mm. If you take cities like Paris, and many of you have heard of Mayor Hidalgo's uh, push you know, against cars and to have more clean forms of urban mobility and mm -hmm. more room for pedestrian cycling and so on, this comes at a political cost. We saw it also with Mayor Park in Seoul. And so you need a policy mix that changes behavior that goes beyond the pure taxing, I would say, or economic instrument side, mm. and that makes it basically uh, difficult to continue with current business models while having targeted accompanying measures for the vulnerable groups. Now, on social policy, I will disrespectfully disagree. <laughs> I think that, that today, uh, fighting poverty cannot be uh, relying only on social policy. And I think the evolution of regional policy mm. in the European Union context and how cohesion funds and structural funds are being used for lagging regions to catch up, but also for urban inequalities to be addressed shows it. Shows that it's regional policy that is providing this good mix mm. of sectoral investments, uh, social policy, place-based responses to transition basically uh, to low carbon economy and address inclusive growth. So I, I think that it's true. There are many dimensions that have to do with social policy. There are many issues that have to do with education that are at, at central government level, labor market skills at national level. But I think you need that mix that mainstreams climate change transition into all sectoral areas and that does not expect social policy, traditional areas per se, to sort out the, the distributional effect. So Excellent, thank I, you. Um, I, prom I, I want to bring both of you in, I do, but I'm going to, because I'm, I'm at risk of eating into your coffee time.
So I need to, and as my colleagues is telling me, close this session. But I'm going to be with you on this one. I'll just, I'll just experience her wrath for a second. But gentlemen there who wanted to just come in, you have to be very brief, please, because there is an exercise I want to do with you also. I'm, I'm Franco Ruzzanenti from uh, Groningen University, Faculty of Science. So I'm on the 96% of uh, the wealth <laughs> of the money given to universities. And uh, so, to me, as a, let's say, a hard uh, scientist, uh, as you want to put it, uh, energetist, cities are not the product of uh, societies, are the product of oil. Uh, for basically, not centuries, millennia, 80% of population was employed in land. Since basically, and this is an intensely stable uh, share, 18% of population since the times of Egyptians. Until now, now we have 2% of population employed in land. And, uh, and this is what's obviously achieved by the fact that basically uh, now the productivity of land is four times more. And uh, the productivity of labor in land is more than ten, ten times more. And this, okay. uh, this was achieved by oil. But so, no, let me, let me, let me, no, because I'm running out of time, so I really need to get to the question, please, sir. The question is, uh, as mm. a friend uh, uh, used to say, we want uh, to save uh, oil by saving land and labor. But oil made us save land and labor. And this is the big paradox. And we have to deal with it if you want to talk about cities. Cities doesn't exist without land. Okay, all right. Florent, do you want to res perhaps reflect on that? But I think the question, the issues that were raised about, you know, um, if cities owned the grid, would it make a difference? Therefore, what does that say for you as an MEP? in the future in terms of regulation, legislation? Maybe I, I would comment on, on, on what I heard. I totally agree on what you said, eh? I totally agree on what you said because that's true that we are child, children of, of, of all. I don't know if the people just uh, uh, imagine a world without fossil fuels, what that means, for example, to produce a tomato. Because no, most of the tomatoes that you are eating right now, eating with uh, snow outside, I think we don't have any tomato here in Belgium. So it comes from Chile, for example. And that means we need some oil. And without oil, we don't have the kind of things that we have, and we don't have the kind of cities that we have. So maybe in the next, uh, next years, the next year, 2030, 2050, we'll have to think about the shifting to go not towards city, but towards the land. So I totally agree with you, but that's a deep reflection that we have to do, and that's very a minority thing about that in the European Parliament, but that's a fundamental one. But I want to, to, to go back on values. I totally agree with what you said before, but just to say that we're working a lot of that on values, because values is a key point. Because you don't convince people just with numbers. You convince people with values. And if you want to convince people, for example, we are working a lot on just transition in the coal mining regions, for example. And there, if you want to talk to the people, to the miners or to the people living in the coal mining regions, saying, hey, you have to make a transition towards uh, coal, uh, clean energy. Well, just with numbers, that doesn't work. You have to talk about their values. And what are the values of the people in the coal mining regions? Tradition, group, family, solidarity. That's the starting point. And from this starting point, then you can make the just transition because you can talk the same language. So in case of your friends, that's the same thing. You have to talk uh, starting from his values. And from his values, you can build something. And so that's why it's so important to talk about values and to talk about emotion. Emotion. And I think that's something that we have to put in politics. Not emotion to go to the extreme right, because that's very easy to, 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 to work with emotion. No, to work with emotion on a positive way. Starting from the people and going something 
positive. I think that's a key point in politics. And just to finish, uh, because uh, you talked before about the, the, the policy, I think that's a policy coherence, because if we want to climate streaming, energy mainstreaming, I think that's a key point, because that's, a, that's true, what we have right now, that's an aggregation of uh, sectorial policies, and that doesn't work at all, because we have to have this holistic approach that we say, I think that what we really need in the next European Commission, for example, that's a commissioner of transition. A transition, I don't know if to call that, to come to a transition, I can say that can have an overall view of all the politics, for example, saying that climate and energy are key points on all these politics. That would be a key point that we need and something that would, I would ask to the next uh, president of the European Commission, to the first question that you ask, we want transition to be the basis, the basis and ecological and just transition to be the basis of the next policies of the European Parliament, European Commission, European Union. Great. Have you heard it here? Let's see if it happens in the, in, by the end of the year. But we'll credit you to it, obviously, uh, if we do get a just transition or a transitions commissioner. Um, Stephen, I wanted to come to you. And if, I mean, Florent didn't answer that question about grid ownership. Would you, please, in terms of, you know, whether that would make a difference? Uh, yes. I mean, I, well, I, I suppose the answer is maybe. Um, <laughs> and, and it's interesting to sort of put the two... Uh, questions from Netherlands and, 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 and Bosnia together because I've, I've got a project just up the road in, in, in Zenica which is really vying with uh, Sarajevo for the most polluted city um, in the world. But um, uh, I, on, on the Netherlands side, the, you know, the, sort of the, the, gas, the commitment to a gas transition, it, it's, it's interesting to me that that's not anything to do with climate. It's, it's, it's to do with uh, depletion and, and, the, and the effect on properties of sort of um, subsidence and, 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 and the sort of politics of damage to properties um, that, that's, that's driving that, although um, I, I think 10 years is probably, I would agree, is, 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 is not possible. Um, on the other hand, a really clear policy statement does drive all sorts of action, and, and if everybody believes in that, in that policy statement and, and, the, and that policy commitment, then industry makes decisions, developers, everybody sort of moves in, in, in line with that. But, but again, coming back to the, to the grid question, because at least there in, in, um, in, in Zenitsa and lots of places in, in, in Europe and Eastern Europe, you have um, district heating networks which are municipal-owned, and, and maybe in some places you also have electricity networks. And, and what I see in places like that is um, the, the, the advantage of having that municipal ownership is is only go so far as they actually have the capacity and the resources to do something with, with the network. And, and, and in that particular example, you see a network which is, um, has you know, decades of neglect. Uh, they've got very little capacity. You've got customers who are leaving, and so the asset base is, is, is getting less and less supported. And so, um, so in a place like that, you, you can make change and, and take action, but only when you have the capacity and the resources um, to, to, to renew the system or, 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 or invest in the, in the transition. Um, so I think that's a, that's, a, that's a key challenge. And I think also it, it raises to me a broader point, I've sort of made it before, but, but about um, decentralization uh, and, and, and devolution, what has to come with that is, is, is capability and capacity at, at, at local levels. It's very easy for, for governments to transfer responsibility but if they then don't, don't transfer the resources and provide the support within, you know, knowledge, knowledge and, and ownership and all of that behind it, point. then, then, you, get, then yeah. you, you just get that stratification of, of lots more responsibility and, and, and no more capacity to do anything with it. 
Excellent. Great. Did you want to come in? We have to be very, very brief, Simone. I don't want to answer that question directly. Mm. Yes, clearly ownership matters, and it does make a difference. If you want to know how it makes a difference, we need a new research project which compares... Uh, different ownership situations and the consequences of them around Europe. <laughs> Thank you. That gives me a great segue. This is more money for more research. Um, no, uh, you heard it. The, I'm going to, before I let you out for coffee, if I, if, if I can put it in those terms, um, ask you for, um, for you to reflect and uh, put your kind of, I suppose, um, where, you know, put, put your commitment into practice, if you like. If... If I've got, I think we've got a slide that should be coming up regarding the seven principles. And as you know, as I started off at the beginning, the conference here is very much a call to action. A call to action to um, really integrate and incorporate uh, social sciences humanities research into future funding. It's particularly the big thing, which is Horizon Europe, which will go into the 2020s, 2030s, which has a huge impact, absolutely. And you heard from Rosie saying that actually only 4% at the moment is dedicated to this particular area. And given that it's all about society, should it not be more? So therefore, if you believe that, here are the seven principles. What we'd like you to do, if you get your phone out... Um, or if you've got your laptop or whatever, what I'd like you to do is, the next slide will tell you, so go on to Sleedo. So all you have to do, so it's very simple. You go on to the website, Sleedo, which is there. So could you, if you've got your phone handy. The point of this is actually you're going to go on to Sleedo, um, enter Shape Energy, and then just put your name and organization. If you, if you want to sign up, sign up to the fact that these principles matter and you think that actually change needs to happen in funding policy and priority over the next term. So that's what you have to do. Go to Sledo. Literally, you don't have to download anything. It's just basically, once you put, put that in, you'll immediately uh, get the second step, which is to put in Shape Energy. You don't even have to do the hashtag. And then put your name and your organisation. And that's it. Simple as that. Don't worry, there's not going to be a chart up here to see how many people have signed up. We want to get 500. Why not? <laughs> because we don't have the technology, that's why. Um, <laughs> um, but we, we're trying to get uh, 500 or more signatures, as many as signatures we can. But, you know, uh, 500 would, uh, would be a, a sizable uh, signal, I think, uh, to the Commission and others that are thinking about this. So thank you all very much. Please do do that if you haven't had a chance to. It's very simple. Go to Sledo. Hashtag's already there, Shape Energy, and then sign your name. Or literally put your name, uh, type in your name in your organisation. Thank you all. Thank you, our speakers. And thank you for being a really good audience. And let's hope the next session about finance leadership is equally uh, fulsome and engaging. See you.